Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. On this week's PreserveCast, join us as we talk with Daniel Gagnon about his book, A Salem Witch, The Trial, Execution, and Exoneration of Rebecca Nurse. Dan will take us on a deep dive into the world of the Salem Witch Trials and how one story stuck out and just had to be told. We cover everything from the accusations to the legacy and how witchcraft-themed tourism impacts modern storytelling. All that and much more as PreserveCast heads to bygone New England on this week's episode. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're thrilled to be talking with author and historian Dan Gagnon. And we're going to be talking all about, in particular, uh, his latest book, A Salem Witch Trial, The Trial, Execution, and Exoneration of Rebecca Nurse. And so we're going to be talking about what all that means and and how this story came together and how he researched the topic. Um, but before we get there, we like to know uh, a little bit about our guests. So where did you grow up, Dan? Uh, what kind of line of work are you in? And, and how did you kind of end up um, so enthralled with a story like this? Well, thank you, Nick. It's nice to be on here with you uh, talking about a topic that I think is uh, really important in the history of the United States. With my background, I'm born and raised in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is the community that was known as Salem Village in 1692. So I grew up nearby to historic houses, monuments, sites that were related to the, the Salem Village witch hunt. And it just kind of began from there. I say that I think Danvers is probably the only town anywhere where they take all third graders on a field trip that includes the visit to a grave of a accused witch. <laughs> probably one of the very few places that do that. Uh, but that is our local history. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm curious, people might think like, okay, well, this guy grew up there. Do you have any direct ancestral connections to any of the accused or the accusers, for that matter? That's a good question. I do not. Um, my family is is not really old New England Yankee. It's half French Canadian and half Irish. So we were not uh, not in the community at that point. Okay, I guess could it be either be a good or a bad thing? Um, so <laughs> depending on yeah. what was going on at the time. So uh, let's take a step back. So you obviously are you know, born, raised here, you're enthralled in this, and it's just sort of history's all around you. But a lot of people who grew up in historic places, they don't all end up writing books about it. What is your profession? What do you do professionally day to day? And how does this book kind of fit into it? Well, day to day, I'm now a high school history teacher on the North Shore of Massachusetts. How I got there was um, maybe not the straightest of tracks. As a high school student, I was always interested in history. I, it was my best subject, and I knew that I wanted to go on to do something with history, but I was not really sure. Uh, I went to college for history, and I still wasn't exactly sure where I was going to go from there. Um, I went to graduate school, and what's interesting, I think, is, is a slight track change in terms of topic. 
when I was growing up in Danvers, my first summer job was actually taking tickets uh, for tours at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. So I was right in it. I mean, if I was interested in history, that was the local place that would make the most sense. However, when I went to college and in graduate school, that was not my focus. That was not my, my area of research. It was post-war Europe the European Union, the European community. So something that is quite different. I don't know if maybe after being around the Salem Witch Trials history for so long, I wanted just a little bit of something different. Uh, and I enjoyed that. But after graduate school, when I decided what I wanted my first real big research project to be, I knew what it was going to be. And it was going to be something about Salem Village and the witch trials. So it's interesting when you say first big thing, it was first the big thing for you, but also the book is sort of billed as one of the first actual like in-depth explorations uh, and, and, you know, of of one of the the accused witches. Um, and, and it always surprises me when we have these like hallmark moments of American history. And then just now we're finally getting an actual in-depth like academic style treatment of somebody. Um, why do you think that was? What, what, why did it wait? So, why did it take so long for someone to actually go beyond a pamphlet or sort of myth and legend? I would say that at first glance, I was felt very similarly to you that if this is one of the biggest events in early, at least American history, basically, how was there not already something on the shelf? And I pursued it because I saw that there was a need. With my involvement with the Rebecca Nurse Homestead, um, it, it just seemed odd that there was no like standalone biography of Nurse or any of the other victims of the witch hunt in print. I mean, you go to various museums for anybody. If you go to Mount Vernon, they probably get 30 different biographies of George Washington. But you go to the Rebecca Nurse house and they have zero? That seemed like something was really missing. Now, as to why... I, I think because it straddles several different, almost time periods in the sense of sources. With Rebecca Nurse, she's a first-generation settler. Her story begins in England. Then it comes, and that has one set of, like, one category of records. Then in early Massachusetts, with any of those involved in the witch hunt, the prior to the witch hunt, the written record is scarce. And it's difficult. And especially with so many of the accused being women, their names don't show up in a lot of records. It's mm. usually, if it's something legal action or, or court, it's always their husband. And really, in order to find Rebecca Nurse's pre-Salem life, one needed to investigate her husband and see between the lines where she is in the story, because she is very much in the story ahead of time. It is her life and she is doing things and doing things in the community, but it's not her name on the piece of paper. One simple example is they end up adopting two young children. Well, okay, her husband, Francis, is the one who signs his name on the court document. But who do you think is actually caring for these two young children whose life is really being the most changed by it? And it it would be her. And then like the third category of sources is during the witch hunt, which actually probably is the highest availability. Only recently, there have been projects to try to compile every court record that had ever been known and look around to make sure that we weren't missing any others, though we, I'm sure, are. 
And then for my view of the story, it, it doesn't end in 1692, but it goes afterwards to see the legacy, to see how these people are remembered. And for that, I think I was uniquely positioned being in Danvers, knowing the community and the history of the community to connect those dots. Whereas somebody who had lived halfway around the world and was just unfamiliar with the history of the town might not have connected those dots the same way. So again, for people listening, and we'll have a link in the show notes, the book is called um, A Salem Witch, The Trial, Execution, and Exoneration of Rebecca Nurse. Um, We're not going to spoil the whole story for you because you should pick up the book and read it. Um, So uh, with that said, maybe you could put her in context. Why did you pick this particular witch? What is the story about her? And I shouldn't really say witch because she was an accused witch. Um, I'm not sure if you believe she was a witch or not, uh, but, but, uh, you know, put her a little bit in context and, and perhaps why she was one that you chose to actually focus in on. So I focused in on Rebecca Nurse because I felt like her case would reveal the most about the witch hunt overall. With the events in the, the Salem Village witch hunt, it's during the year 1692. It lasts about eight or nine months, depending on how people kind of categorize the period of accusations. And during that time, there are almost 200 people we know of accused, like on paper, like officially accused. Uh, we're going to have 19 people hanged, one pressed to death, and at least five die in jail. So it, it is a big event, and it's an event with a lot of people, meaning I could have focused on one of hundreds of these people. With Nurse, at every time period before, during, and after the witch trials, Rebecca Nurse kind of stands out as a unique case. What I mean to say is, at the time, she's seen as really the least likely, the one that has first pushback, seems unlikely to actually be guilty of witchcraft. Later on, though, when we get to the part about the memory and legacy, uh, Arthur Miller puts her front and center in the crucible. She's front and center in other works that somehow a lot of people are drawn to her story. And so therefore, there has to be something there. In terms of her being the one least likely to be accused of witchcraft, especially she's accused early on in the witch hunt, when all of those before her were people of ill repute, people who had conflict in their past with neighbors, friends, family, the Puritan congregations, and kind of they fit what historians have kind of categorized as someone likely to be accused of witchcraft. They've done done demographic research, they have statistics of what would have made one more likely to be accused of witchcraft in colonial New England. And Rebecca Nurse just doesn't fit those categories. Uh, The only high-risk category, I guess I'll call it, uh, is that she is a woman, which would make one more likely to be accused of witchcraft. But other than that, we don't see economic motivators, religious motivators, personal disputes as a motivator. It's really an amazing case. And, And given how long it's taken to get a book like this together, how difficult was the research? I mean, how many years did this take you? How far did it take you? Um, how challenging was the story to piece back together? Well, it um, it was definitely challenging at some times. With 
the overall story, the pre-1692 part, was the most difficult in terms of piecing together sources. Because it's really, you have to look up her family members and her husband, and some sources are in just a variety of places. You Some have been published in the 19th century, and now we're, you know, put on the Internet Archive or somewhere like that that's readily accessible. And others definitely are not uh, in any way widely accessible. I did research in the Danvers Archival Center, which is the, in the Danvers Town Library that has some it has a copy from the time of a deed to the nurse homestead. It has documents from the nurse family regarding payment of mortgages, uh, which sort of refuted a 19th century claim that they were very well off and it was an accusation not of envy. I went to the Phillips Library of the Peabody Essex Museum that at that point, uh, no longer, but at that point, their library had the trial records Um and so looking in the trial records to try to see what accusations reflect things prior to 1692 to try to fill that in. I was very fortunate in one regard in that my last trip to view some of the original trial records, I went one more time to go see the transcript of when Rebecca Nurse was first questioned by the judges. Because in some printed editions of the trial documents, there was a disagreement. And there was actually um, one question written on the back of the page that some historians had not transcribed when they transcribed the front of it. And so I went back one more time to like make sure that I had written it right, since others had left it off. And it was about uh, two weeks before the pandemic started. And had I not gone during my February school vacation, uh, the library was shut uh, with with all of the closures, and that would have very much impacted my book timeline. So it worked out right in time. So does there any sense, I mean, back to the question about why this, and you know, and, and maybe we'll take a pause after this and come back and talk about the legacy, but um, wh- why her? Why'd they pick her? If she didn't fit the bill other than being a woman, do you have any sense for why that happened? Um, and does talk about how the book gets into that conversation. So this is really, I think, the heart of the matter question as to why somebody who's so unlikely would be accused and what it seems to come down to, which on the one hand is kind of infuriating, is almost a fluke. During the beginning of the witch hunt, several of these accusers, um, many of whom were younger women, had mentioned that they had seen specters, which is like the ghostly shape of someone that appears when they're not there. And they believed that a witch could send their specter to hurt somebody, for example. And that was that was an example of witchcraft. We have Anne Putnam Jr., who's a young teenager, who claims in front of others that she was attacked by a specter that, of course, only she can see. So everyone else just sees her rolling on the ground, kicking and punching as if something is attacking her. And afterwards, when she's asked who it is, she doesn't answer them. She doesn't know. She then says, it's someone here, uh, or it's someone in the village, and she narrows it down to somebody that she does not know. She says, I've seen this person before. They sit next to my grandmother in the pew, in the meeting house. Now, they sat by age and by sex, so that pew would have been full of several older women in the village. Rebecca Nurse was Mm. 71 at the time. Um, And someone in the Putnam family household says, 
suggests Nurse's name as, is that Rebecca Nurse? But the moment it said other people who weren't present, but must have later heard about it, also take up the accusation. And it's just this idea that once somebody suggests a name and it comes out of somebody's mouth, even if there is seemingly no actual reason, that is taken up and that person is basically doomed, even if it's a fluke. With Ann Putnam Jr., depending on what we, you know, how much credibility we give to what she says she saw, but it appears that she did not even know who Rebecca Nurse was. You couldn't have something against somebody if you had never met them or had never understood who this person was. Um, but once mentioned, the whole process starts rolling against Nurse. It, it, it says more about us than it does certainly about the accused. <laughs> it has something about human nature and um, the the tendency to judge and, and jump to judgment. Uh, it's a little scary. Uh, we did a, a preserve cast last year. Uh, on witchcraft in Maryland. Um, and I suggested at the time that perhaps uh, the thing about witchcraft in these moments is that it, it scares us because we wonder, do we have blind spots like this ourselves? Because uh, it's mm. easy to point at the historical record and, and think that they were foolish. But I suppose sometimes we probably do th similar things, maybe not accusing people of witchcraft, but certainly jumping to judgment. And that's the kind of legacy stuff that I want to talk about and what the big takeaways are from this. Well, let's take a quick break. Come back and we'll continue the conversation. Um, we're talking with uh, Dan Gagnon and we're talking all about his book, A Salem Witch, The Trial, Execution and Exoneration of Rebecca Nurse. Historians, preservationists, Main Street lovers, smart growth enthusiasts, old house fans, history buffs, historic tradespeople and those who love them. We're calling on you to support Preservation Maryland's annual fundraiser as we do the important work of protecting our past and investing in our future. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization where I serve as president and CEO. I'm asking you to help us harness the power of historic places by revitalizing and reinvesting in communities, advocating, and building the historic trades workforce by making a gift at presmd.org donate. Thanks. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Thrilled to be chatting with Dan all about his new book, A Salem Witch, The Trial, Execution, and Exoneration of Re Re Rebecca Nurse. And we've been going around and around talking all about how the, how he got into this work and why he picked Rebecca and how it took so long to get this story together. And then the poor circumstances that surround her being selected as the potential witch, which is basically just sort of sitting in the wrong pew at the wrong time at church. And I guess that was her uh, her major crime. Um, so I won't spoil the story for people because they should pick up the book. And we have a link in the show notes for people to buy it um, on, on what happens to her. Uh, we don't want a, a spoiler on this nearly 400-year-old story. Um, but uh, <laughs> talk to me about the legacy. Um, you know, you mentioned the crucible and, and how it runs through that. That's obviously a big part of it. I mean, just even in the American lexicon, it's a witch hunt, um, I, I suppose, kind of goes all the way back to this moment in time. How do you frame the legacy? What do you feel like the big takeaways are for people who are listening, who perhaps, you know, we have listeners overseas are hearing this and aren't really familiar with it, but are now are aware that it was a historical event and moment in time. Why does it still matter today? Well, it very much matters, as you mentioned before the break, the idea that people jump to conclusions um, erroneously, you know, quite 
clearly. But in terms of the why the legacy matters, the legacy is one nurse's legacy and the legacy of the other victims of trying to go back and right a wrong, even though with 20 people who are killed, you cannot right that wrong after the fact. Uh, it, it in part, nurse's legacy is so strong because despite the accusation against her, despite her going on trial, despite the community turning against her, her family sticks with her. And this is dangerous to them because they could be accused next, standing up for someone accused of witchcraft. There were other people who, when one person in the family was accused, the rest of the family wanted nothing to do with them and did not show up to defend them. So it's great credit to the nurse family, her extended family, uh, who stick with her. They work afterwards to have her name cleared officially by the, the Massachusetts legislature in the early 1700s. They continue to live on her farm um, for about two centuries later. And with this in general, we see many other people using it. As you mentioned, the crucible. Arthur Miller uses this as, a, this as an example uh, for something. And it's a work of fiction, the crucible. He merges some characters together. Notably not Nurse. Nurse's portrayal is actually really good. She's essentially compelling enough of a character that one didn't need to change anything. But he uses it in a way that really shows you the idea that once someone is accused, like there is no exit. There, there is no way out of this to prove yourself innocent. The Witch Trials legacy is also one that really is still being reckoned with today, locally in Massachusetts as a whole. We have others who nurse was cleared in the 1700s. Others were not cleared until the crucible came out. And suddenly there was this renewed interest in the 1950s names were cleared. We had a couple others, victims whose names were cleared in 2001. And then last summer, uh, last uh, a year ago in August, there was one final person who somehow had been overlooked all of these times. And in the Massachusetts state budget, <laughs> they stuck in a provision clearing her name. Uh, and that, so now all of the people executed during the Salem witch hunt or convicted have been cleared. There's others now working for, there were people executed before Salem whose names have never been cleared and they never have a memorial. With Nurse's legacy and how it's unique, in the 1800s, in 1885, her family fundraises. People from all over the country return to her farm in Danvers. They hold fundraising basically like fancy Victorian picnics, like out, on, out in the fields. And in the family cemetery, where she was reputed to have been buried, they build a granite monument, a large obelisk in her honor. In 1885, this is the first time in the, the, the Western world here that you have someone who was accused of witchcraft get a memorial. That had never mm. been done anywhere before. And, and it is a world historic event in that sense, that kind of reckoning. It's a groundbreaking form of reckoning. It's reported in newspapers all over the world. Uh, in Europe, way out on the western frontier, you can just imagine some cowboys out in Dakota reading about the story. Uh, people in Germany, people in Britain, that it is that sort of a world historic event that a community has reckoned with that past. Now, in the 1800s, it was only nurse it took until 1992, the 300th anniversary, to have a memorial to all the victims. It's, you know, it's it's fascinating um, that 
that this one character sort of has persisted and and also still kind of back to that original point. Fascinating. It took so long to get uh, a full length book about her. It sounds like it would make probably a good movie, too. Maybe you're optioning it. We'll find out. Um, But, uh, you know, um, it's it's also interesting that this whole industry has grown up in Salem. You didn't mention that far, that part rather, that it's um, that it's this whole industry of, of witchcraft and all of the sort of, um, I don't know what you would call it. I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a bad thing or a good thing, but um, there's this whole tourism industry driven around this idea of witchcraft when in fact these women and men have been absolved of their crimes have been, you know, it's been stated in public law. They didn't commit this. Their, their names have been cleared yet. That still persists too. I guess as a local with who is passionate about this issue, how do you feel about that? I mean, that's, you know, it's sort of like ghost tours at Gettysburg. It's, there are people on various sides there. I'm curious where you come down on that now, having done all this work and invested so much time and and effort in writing a story about Rebecca. I think your ghost tours at Gettysburg is, is an interesting connection and one that I think is kind of, apt. I, I would say in terms of how I, I see this, it's it's in a few ways. Just as a way of background, the real Salem tourism really doesn't begin until the early 80s. Uh, it's kind of mm-hmm. a push by the Salem business community uh, that there are museums who are set up, some that are more historically focused and others a little more sensational, um, that all claim to have something to do with witchcraft, the witch trials, kind of broadly interpreted. And every year in October alone, a million people visit Salem. Um, there are Saturdays in October where they'll have 100,000 people at once there. Uh, so it is a big, big draw. It brings a lot of people and it's growing like exponentially. So I imagine it will continue too. There's kind of definitely some pros and cons here. I mean, the cons is there are some aspects of like literally Halloween town kind of an atmosphere which doesn't really do anything to remember the victims of the witch hunt Um, on the other hand this does bring a lot of people to the real legitimate historic sites Mm -hmm. too um, that do tell a real historical telling of the story and probably even those who show up for more of a Halloween party atmosphere do leave learning something about the Salem witch trials. And, and so in that sense, it it could be bringing history to a wider audience, but there certainly are some, some drawbacks and, and maybe some less than respectful aspects. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a broader uh, conversation. Maybe we'll get you and some other folks on to kind of debate uh, and the pros and cons on the public history side, right? Like, what is public history willing to embrace? Um, because, you know, I don't really have an agenda when it comes to Salem tourism and the whole, as you say, the kind of Halloween town atmosphere. But then you have sort of this real history and, it, you know, it's similar to a Gettysburg. People want that experience of somehow connecting with the past. Um, but then there's that line where does it cross over into something that, you know, in that place, is that disrespectful of those who fell there and who who, who lost their lives? Uh, so 
Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, it's one that we won't settle, but uh, one up for debate and one um, for public historians and preservationists to think about how best to use that energy to engage people. Um, so before we go, what are you working on next? Um, and if people want to follow you or read that or read what you write, where can they do all that? Sure. Well, to find out more about the book, um, my website is danielgagdenhistory.com. I'm on Twitter or X um, as, as Dan Gagden USA. In terms of what I'm working on now, I'm looking for a new project, doing some reading into different time periods. I haven't really settled on a major research project. I was looking a little bit into how some of these people are only one generation away from the American Revolution and how they, you know that's really close, a lot closer than people think. For my current work, I have been working more in the sense of now that I've written about and explored, so to speak, some of these sites, um, more looking to preserve them. I volunteer on the board of the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. Um, I'm the chairman of the Salem Village Historic District, which is the town of Danvers' historic district. And we're in the middle of reevaluating, you know, how do we protect these first period pre-1725 homes that we have? Uh, there are more of those in Danvers that used to be Salem Village than there are in the city of Salem. Um, maybe fewer people visit them, but they're historically important from a preservation angle. And so now that now that we have a story, it's making sure that some of these places are still there for other people to explore. The Rebecca Nurse Homestead is the only home of a victim of the witch hunt that's open to the public. But there are other houses that exist with connections. We have the foundation of where Reverend Samuel Paris, the minister of Salem Village, used to live. The house was torn down in the 1800s. But you can go and you can stand in the cellar hole of where the first, the house of where the first accusations were made and kind of try to think about what happened here? How did how did all of this come out of this one household? Fascinating. Well, um, next time I'm up in New England, I want I want to go and, and stand stand there. Um, you've sold me uh, sold me on the book. Certainly, it's a good read, and uh, encourage people to pick it up. Uh, great way to start the new year, reading about an important aspect of American history. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today, and look forward to having you back when you write the next one. Thank you very much, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.